Amen, amen. You may have a seat. Good morning, everyone. Merry Christmas. My name is Christian Roots, and I am the associate pastor here at the Vineyard. I'm, I'm so glad to be with you all today. And I, I have to be honest, there was a bit of a Christmas miracle at our first service. For the first time in my short preaching career, I actually went short on time. And so I, I don't know how we're going to rectify that this service. I, I anticipate some tangents, and so get ready for that. But uh, on that note, I, I better pray. And so why, why, don't you guys, why don't you guys pray with me? Let's pray together, church. God, we thank you for the, the gift, the miracle, the blessing of the Christmas season, God. And while many of us, God, have been following you and, and worshiping you and, and celebrating the Christmas season for many years, I, I pray that it would never grow old, God, that it would never grow stale, that even now, God, you would, you would increase our sense of wonder and amazement that you took on flesh, Jesus, coming into this world in order that we might find freedom and forgiveness in you. Father, I pray that, that even now, God, you would increase our sense of wonder and gratitude and joy. And I, I pray, Father, that you would put power on this message, that you would fill me now, Holy Spirit. I have nothing to offer apart from you, God. We, we recognize, God, that there, there's no amount of eloquence or anecdotes that, that could change a heart, God, that it has to be you. And so I, I pray, Jesus, that you would fill me now. Help me to, to preach your word faithfully, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Well, over the past few weeks, we've been walking through an Advent series centered around the subject of hope. And this morning, as we continue our series... We're going to be looking at the classic Christmas story of the announcement of Jesus' birth to the shepherds. And so let's read that again shortly. We're, we're in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. This is what we read. If you have your Bible, you can go, with, go there now. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Understatement. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Amen. Now here in, here in Luke chapter 2, we find a group of, of shepherds visited by a great company of angels. And as the shepherds heard the news about a newborn Savior, this news produced a, a hope inside of them, which which drew them, which compelled them to leave their posts so that they might visit this Messiah, this Savior who had come to them. And this is what hope does, doesn't it? That hope doesn't allow us to stay in the same place. Hope draws us, it, it compels us to move away from cynicism and into expectation. 
Hope draws us away from paralysis and passivity and into action. Hope draws us away from self-pity and into determination, into to grit. And, and virtually nowhere in our church calendar are we given more reason for hope as followers of Jesus than, than at Christmas time. And, and so I, I want to spend our, our time today highlighting just a couple of ways that the, the hope of Christmas changes us and, and draws us forward into new terrain. It's always the first page that gives me the most trouble here. And so to begin, here's my first point. The hope of Christmas, it, it draws us away from despair and into joy. Draws us away from despair and into joy. And so if you're, you're keeping score at home, if, you, if you've got your notes out, that's our first point. Let's look at verse 10 again. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. The hope of Christmas, it brings us great joy. Now, in order to understand today's passage, we have, to, uh, dig, we have to dig a little bit into the historical context. These shepherds who were visited by this great company of angels, they, they weren't ordinary shepherds. These were shepherds who had been, who had been set apart specifically for the purpose of, of raising up the lambs that would be sacrificed at the temple. Bethlehem, the, the hills of Bethlehem at this time, were famous because here on these hills, these these lambs were raised and reared so that they might be sacrificed. In Jerusalem, you see, men and women and children would, would travel to Jerusalem from all over Israel, from outside of Israel, to offer sin offerings on, on behalf of their sins, for, for the atonement of their sins. And, and instead, of, instead of dragging or carrying lambs from, from all across the the countryside from all over the world. Instead, they would buy lambs in Jerusalem. They would buy spotless and, and blemish-free lambs that they could then offer as a sacrifice for, for their sins. And so these shepherds would have been set apart specifically for the task of, of rearing and raising up these, these sacrificial lambs. And these shepherds, they would store their provisions and, and watch over the flocks at a very famous tower in that day called Migdal Eder, which means the tower of the flock. So they would store their provisions, these shepherds, in this tower, keeping them free from predators. And then they would stand at the top of the tower and they would watch over the fields so that they would make sure that the lambs were free from attack. And during the lambing season... Historians tell us that the sheep were brought into the bottom of the tower in order to be protected while they gave birth. And so after the baby lambs were born, they were placed in swaddling cloths to prevent them from thrashing about, to prevent them from hurting themselves or hurting others, and so that they might be inspected for spots or, or blemishes. They were placed in swaddling cloths, and then the shepherds, after the lamb, the newborn lamb had had calmed down, were able to inspect them for spots or blemishes since the lambs sacrificed at the temple were required to be spotless and without blemish. Now, here's, here's where things get really interesting in my mind. It's intriguing to note that the angel of the Lord never actually tells the shepherds where to find this newborn Messiah, and yet the shepherds somehow know exactly where to go. Have you ever noticed that? You ever picked up on that? How, how could that be? 
Well, well, here at this point, we're diving into a bit of conjecture here. That it's not shared with us explicitly in the scriptures, but, but many believe today that the shepherds weren't given directions because the newborn Messiah was born in a, a place of great familiarity to these men. Today, many scholars believe that it was in the lower level of, of their very tower, the tower of the flock on the edge of Bethlehem, where Jesus was actually born. And so you can imagine what it would have been like to have been these shepherds and to find a newborn baby lying in the very place where the lambs set aside for the temple sacrifice were born. And then to find this baby swaddled in cloths in the same way that they would swaddle these lambs that had been set aside to be sacrificed. In that moment, God was saying to those shepherds and saying to us, You have been trained to raise up thousands of lambs that they might be sacrificed for the sins of your people in the temple. And yet these these sacrifices, they can't remove guilt. It is here with this baby, with this Savior, where you will find true forgiveness for your sins. It is here with this baby where you're going to find true acceptance before the Father. Here with this baby that you're going to find true freedom from guilt and your shame. It is here with this baby that you're going to find peace with God. I believe Hebrews chapter 10 captures this scene well. This is what we read in Hebrews chapter 10. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. I I believe, church, that Hebrews chapter 10, this is is the Christmas message in, in a nutshell. That God does not desire sacrifice and offerings, that, that the Jews at the time would bring thousands upon thousands of sacrifice at the temple in hope of, of appeasing God, in the hope of atoning for their sins, of covering their sins. And yet, yet the Lord says, sacrifice and offering I, I do not desire. And then what comes next? But a body you prepared for me, Jesus says. A, a body you prepared for me, that Jesus took on flesh. He came into this world as a baby, both fully man and fully God, in order that he might offer himself as a sacrifice one time for the forgiveness of our sins, the perfect sacrifice that would atone and redeem us. Friends, this is good news that brings great joy. So let me, let me bring this down just a bit, just so we can understand a little bit more about what's actually going on here. I, I understand that for, for many of us, this, just, this might be going over our heads. So let me, let me bring it down just a, a moment. I want to share with you a true story that occurred near San Francisco in the early 1900s, which I, I think really illustrates for us what, what Jesus was doing when he came to this earth. It's a story of two young Chinese brothers who lived in Chinatown at the time, and the, the younger brother was a, a rebellious young man, and he was living completely off the rails. He was constantly getting into to fights, constantly having run-ins with the law. And one day, the younger brother, he was at a gambling den, got into a fight with another man, and eventually he killed the other man. 
So the younger brother, he ran out of the gambling den. His, bl- his clothes are covered with blood. He runs through the streets and runs all the way home. And after, after arriving home, he, he strips down out of all of his clothes. He hides them as best he can. He puts on new clean clothing, and then he proceeds to, to run out of, out of the home. So the older brother is, is there at the house at the time, and he knows what's happened. He knows that there were, there were a lot of witnesses to the murder, and, and he knows, again, that the, the police, the authorities, were, were well acquainted with this younger brother because of his constant run-ins with the law. So he knew that it was only a matter of seconds before the authorities were, were knocking down their front door. So the, the older brother proceeded then to, to find the, the bloody clothing and put it on himself. It's a true story. So he put on the bloody clothing himself. And then, of course, just a few minutes later, the, the police are there knocking down the door. And they find the older brother there. And immediately they know that they've got the wrong guy. Immediately they know that this is not the younger brother. But, but the older brother, the younger brother, they were roughly the same size, same height, same build. And here's this, here's this young man wearing the clothes that had been identified, covered in blood. So the authorities took him in. Eventually, this older brother was, was tried for, for the murder. He was subsequently convicted and then executed. Now, not long after the execution of his older brother, the, the younger brother eventually he came to his senses. And in a great act of contrition, he, he came to the local authorities and he, and he says, you, you killed the wrong man. I should be punished for this murder. It was me that was in the gambling den. You, you, you punished the wrong man. I, I'm here to turn myself in. And the authorities in that moment, they said, son, it's, it's too late. The crime has been paid for. We, we can't arrest you. Friends, do you, do you see why the message of Christmas is such good news? Why the message of Christmas brings those of us who are followers of Jesus, such great joy. The message of Christmas tells us that Jesus came into this world in order that he might take our bloody clothes off of us, our sinful deeds, so that he might place them on himself and be punished in our place. Our crimes have been paid for and we can't be punished. That's why Romans can say, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that your, your sins have been paid for. You cannot be punished. Now listen, I understand that for many of us, this this time of year is not easy. I mean, many of you, you know, you're in your festive sweaters and you got a smile on your face and it looks like everything is going well, but if you were honest, you're struggling right now. You're struggling. You're just trying to grind your way through the holiday season, just trying to get through it. it. In my experience, it seems that like the Christmas season either seems to intensify the happiness and the joy in our life, it seems to intensify the joy that we're already feeling, or it seems to intensify the sorrow. Some of you here, I, I know, are, are struggling because of your sense of, of loss this Christmas. You're, you're reeling from a recent divorce. You're reeling from the, the recent death of a, a spouse. Some of you I, I know are, are struggling because your family lives in another part of the country and you're not able to see them and 
Some of you I know are lamenting the fact that here we are at another Christmas and you're still single. You've been praying and asking and hoping and yet there's no real prospects on the horizon. So Christmas is a struggle. There's others of you who I I know are just acutely aware of your own physical limitations because of ongoing health issues. You're just just aware that Christmas this year is going to be different because you just don't have the energy you used to have or you don't have the mobility you used to have. And so Christmas is hard. There are some of you who I know are are struggling because of financial burdens and, and you can't provide for your family the Christmas experience that you long to provide for them. And so, friends, when, when we're struggling at Christmas, how, how do we fight for joy? How, how do we fight for joy? For those of us who would say, you know, I'm just not really in, not really in a festive mood right now. Well, number one, we fight for joy by remembering that Jesus came to this earth like a little lamb, set apart to be sacrificed to be slaughtered on our behalf. And we focus on the fact that Jesus is our older brother who took on our bloody clothes, who placed our sinful deeds on himself that he might be punished in our place. We turn to the gospel to find joy at Christmas. And secondly, we fight for joy by remembering that this little life of ours this 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years, however long we have, this little life of ours is is not the end of the story. It's just not the end of the story. You know, I firmly suspect that for all eternity, we are going to continue to celebrate Christmas. And for all of eternity, we're we're going to continue to celebrate and reflect and, and rejoice in this wonderful reality that Jesus took on flesh and came to this earth. And I I believe, church, that that the best Christmas that we could ever experience on earth falls utterly short of the joy and the fulfillment that we are going to experience at Christmas time for billions upon billions upon billions upon billions upon billions of of years. That, that, That is a reality that that for billions upon billions of unending years, you will celebrate Christmas if you were a follower of Jesus, surrounded by other people, free of pain, free of anxiety, and most importantly, in the very presence of your Savior and your King. And so some of us right now would say, Christmas is hard. Doesn't feel like it did 10 years ago. Doesn't feel like it did five years ago. And yet we can, we can hold on to hope. We can hold on to joy by remembering, you know what? This, this little window, this little life, it's not the end of the story. I've got a better Christmas coming forever. The hope of Christmas, church, it brings us into great joy. And secondly, and here's, here's my last point, the hope of, of Christmas, it, it draws us to a decision draws us to a decision. Let's read verse 10 again. This is what we read. But but the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Angel tells the shepherds that this is good news meant for all the people. Now, Now, the angel 
did not mean here that the benefits of, of Jesus' arrival would be received by all. We, we know that. The scripture is, is clear that, that Jesus can and will be rejected by, by many. What, what the angel is saying here is simply that, that this message of good news that will bring great joy, it is available to every man and every woman and every child living on the earth. There is no one who is disqualified from, from this good news that brings great joy. And, and we see this theme throughout Scripture, don't we? Just how absolutely inclusive the invitation of Jesus is. You know, one of the most important Christmas passages that is often overlooked this time of year is, is the genealogy that kicks off Matthew's gospel. It's a genealogy, a, a list of, of names which gives us insight into Jesus' ancestry. And if we're honest, many of us would say, you know, when I come to a list of, of names, when I come to a genealogy in the Old Testament and the New Testament, I'm probably going to skip right past that, right? You know, I mean, show of hands, we don't have to do that. You know, some of us would say, you know, I just put my hand on the page, bless these folks. I'm going to get back to the narrative, Right? But the list of names here in, in the beginning of Matthew, it's actually really important because of the names it includes, because of the people that Jesus, the very beginning of his ministry, linked himself to and identified himself with. So let me, let me just give you a few of the names, just a, a taste. I don't have time to do this exhaustively. So in, in this list of names who Jesus is identifying himself with, we, we find Judah. Now, I don't, I don't know if you know about Judah's story, if you've read his story, but you know, he ended up sleeping with his daughter-in-law, got involved in an incestuous relationship, and that's not a particularly good look, right? And then we have, we have Rahab. I don't know if you know Rahab's story, but she was a Gentile woman and a prostitute. And then we have David, and you might not know David's story, but if you've ever read through the Old Testament, you might know that David committed adultery and killed a man, right? Murderer, adulterer. And that's just a taste. That's just a few of the names that are listed in this genealogy. Here's why this is significant for, this, for us today. Here's why I bring this up. From the moment Jesus enters the scene in the gospel accounts, he's identified, he's linked with men and women who just absolutely blew up their lives. And one of the many reasons we're given a genealogy of Jesus at the beginning of his story is so that his followers might understand that Jesus does not care about your background, and he places no weight on your pedigree or your backstory. Places no weight. He just doesn't care. You know, we live in an age in which we're constantly trying to present the best possible version of ourselves, right? So we take 20 photos, and we find the one that's like in the perfect lighting, right? The just you know, our good side, and it's got the light, and then we, like, use, like, four different filters, and, and then we put that up. Here's what I look like. Here's me. Or we go on vacation, and we're fighting with our family the entire vacation, just clawing at each other, and then finally, on the sixth night there, there's, like, one 10-minute space of peace, and we, we snap a photo, and then we put it up, you know, online, and say, hey, here's our family vacation, Right? Have fun in Ohio with all that snow. You know, we're in, 
Tahiti, just living it up. Don't you wish that you had this life? I mean, that's, that's the world that we live in. It's all about pedigree. It's all about presenting ourselves in the best possible light. And so here comes Jesus, and, and he says, you know who I'm choosing to identify myself with? You know who I'm choosing to link myself with? Here's my pedigree. I come from a line of, of those who committed incest and murder and those who were prostitutes and adulterers just doesn't care about your background. The invitation to receive the good news of Jesus, it's available to all of us. And we see this theme not only throughout the Bible, but we see this theme throughout the world today as well. In the marvelous book, The Insanity of God, by a man named Nick Ripkin, I I heartily recommend it to you. Nick shares a, a true story about a man named Mahmoud a Muslim man who lived in a large city in the the Middle East. Mahmoud owned a a small shop in his hometown, and it was a few doors down from the local mosque and across the street from a a faith-based Christian medical clinic. Now, most of the the people in the city, of of course, were were super thankful that there was a a Christian medical clinic there, that they were able to have access to to medical care that they would not have access to otherwise, and that they were able to to receive both health care and medicine that was really important. But there were others who were concerned about the religious beliefs of the medical clinic workers. And there was no one more militant, no one more outspoken about his opposition to the medical clinic than Mahmoud. Every Friday as the Muslim crowd made their way to Friday prayers, Mahmoud would stir up the crowd against the medical center across the street from his shop. He would would stir up the crowd trying to to rile up opposition, trying to rile up a a mob mentality so that others would would attack the, the clinic. Later on at the mosque, he would accuse the workers at the clinic of preying on or poisoning or or overcharging good Muslims. He would curse and condemn the medical staff by name. Mahmoud, he was an an angry and a a spite-filled man who spewed animosity and hate towards anyone connected to the clinic. Later down the road, Mahmoud contracted a an incurable cancer. His Muslim community considered him contagious, and this particular community was very superstitious, and so they stopped shopping at his store. And so not only was he dying, but, but Mahmoud was unable to provide for his multiple wives and his many, many children. Eventually, the the staff of the clinic, they, they heard of his plight. They, they heard of this fact that, that no one was shopping at Mahmoud's shop anymore. And so the clinic workers began frequenting his shop, and they began purchasing goods from the shop of their most vocal antagonist. They talked with him about his family. They expressed concern over his health, and they always let him know they were praying for him. Eventually, the medical clinic workers, they began to treat Mahmoud's suffering, even washing his body when the need arose. And as these followers of Jesus loved Mahmoud over many, many years, this was a long, drawn-out illness, his heart began to soften towards those he had formerly called evil infidels. 
Mahmoud continued to accept the medical care of his newfound friends, and, and before he finally passed away at the age of 57, Mahmoud made the decision to become a follower of Jesus. Surely the Christian message is one of good news that will cause great joy for all people. Jesus doesn't care about your background. He doesn't care about your pedigree. He doesn't care about where you've been. This is a God who who pursues the persecutors of his own people and says, come to me, come to me. You can come too. I'm trying to stir up opposition against my people. Come to me, come to me. Because this invitation is, is available to all, because none in this room are disqualified, all of us are then drawn to a place of decision. All of us are forced to answer the question, will we receive this this free gift of grace from Jesus, will we decide to prioritize him in our lives or will we reject him? Now, we, we never hear from these shepherds from today's passage again. They never come back into the story, which is a, a bit of a shame. I, I wish I would have known how things would have played out for these shepherds. But we do know that after finding the baby Jesus swaddled in a manger, they were left with a choice, weren't they? These shepherds were left with a choice. Would they look to this baby as their savior? Would they look to this baby as their source of hope, as their king? Or would they return back to the fields and just continue on with business as usual? Just continue raising up lambs for their sacrifice at the temple. And in the same way, each Christmas, we're invited again by God to examine this Christ child afresh and to make a decision as to whether or not we will reorient our entire lives around the Savior in the coming year. You know, make no mistake about it, church, the the call to receive or reject Jesus, it's never a one-time decision, is it? You know, it's not just a one-time decision that you make at summer camp when you're in high school or that you made when you you came forward to some, some preacher's call at one point or another, that the decision to... To follow Jesus is, is one that we make constantly. You know, I, I, didn't, I didn't decide to, to marry my wife once, right? Or to be connected to her once. It wasn't like on our wedding day I decided, well, guess we're going to do this. Guess we're getting married. You know, if you're married, you know that every day you wake up and you have to make another decision. Am I going to serve this person? Am I going to put this person first? Am I going to live sacrificially? The decision to follow Jesus is one that we make continually throughout the course of our lives. So you might be here and you might have been following Jesus for 20 years. You might have received the gift of grace and you might know as a fact that if you were to die today, you would be with Jesus in heaven, that you have been saved by the blood of Jesus. But if you're honest, you might also admit that that life often seems to get in the way of your relationship with Jesus, that that Jesus just seems at times to just remain on the, the periphery of your life. He's there, he's precious to you, you believe in him, and yet so often you would say, he's just not central, that my life isn't revolving around the person and the works of, of Jesus. And, and if that's you, you need to know that this Christmas, 
you've been brought once again to a place of decision. Either this little baby is the savior of the world who's, who's come to take away your sins, or he's not. Either this newborn Savior is worthy of your entire life, all of your possessions, all of your time, all of your freedom, or he's not. But none of us are excused away from making such a decision. I mean, we know this, that, that to forego making a decision is a, inherently a decision, is it not? None of us are excused away from making a decision because this good news of great joy is available to all of us. I've shared this with you before, and I'm sure as one of your pastors here, I will share this with you many times in, in the coming years. My, my prayer for you, my, my prayer for each person here is that in the coming year, by God's grace, you would be able to say that, that you are more in love with Jesus, that you, you're experiencing more passion more zeal, more, more sacrificial love in your life than, than you were the previous year. You know, spoiler alert, that's what I'm praying for you as one of your pastors. That's what I'm praying for myself, that at the end of 2019, you would be able to look back and say, I feel closer to Jesus. I feel more grateful for his sacrifice. I feel more aware of the fact I, I don't deserve his love. I, I feel more amazed at his, his kindness and his truth. I feel more willing to lay down my life for him than I did at the end of 2018. That, that's my prayer for you. That's what I'm praying for you. That's, that's my prayer for myself. I, I understand that, you know, faith isn't always this nice, neat, clean, linear progression in which, it, you know, we just experience one, one breakthrough after another. I understand that it doesn't always work this way, but that's what I'm praying for you. That, that's what I'm praying for you, that this Christmas, is, as you once again examine the Christ child, as you're once again brought in to examine him like the shepherds, that you would make a decision and that you would say, this coming year, I, I want to reorient my life around him. I want to let my life revolve around the Savior by God's grace and with his help. The hope of Christmas it draws us into great joy. It draws us into great joy because we know that Jesus has come, the Lamb of God, to take away the sins of the world, as John the Baptist said. He's our older brother who, who placed our bloody clothes on himself, our sinful deeds on himself, in order that we might be freed from punishment. And he draws us into joy. And secondly, the hope of Christmas draws us to a decision. That because this good news that brings great joy is available to all of us, none of us are excused away from deciding what we're going to do about the claims of Christ. All of us have to decide what this means for us. Why don't we stand? I'm going to invite the worship team back up. Here's, here's what I want to do. I just want to create some space for some of us to respond now to, to today's message. And there's just a few groups in particular I would love to receive prayer today. 
the first group of those who I would love to receive prayer are those who would say, you know, Christian, I, I really resonated with, with your point that the Christmas season does tend to intensify sorrow, if, if that's what we're already feeling. That, that you're just someone who's here today, and, and again, you're just trying to grind your way through the holidays, just trying to put your head down and get through it. And, and if that's where you're at, we would love to pray for you. And, and perhaps you're, you're experiencing a, a, a lack of joy, a discontentment because of a recent tragedy in your life. Or, or perhaps you're, you're not even sure why you're, you're struggling. Life seems good, the kids seem fine, the wife seems fine, the husband's... But you're just aware that it just feels like you're going through the motions this Christmas season. That there's just a lack of, of joy, of expectation, of hope. And if, if that's where you're at, we want to pray for you. We want to help you as your brothers and sisters fight for joy this Christmas. Secondly, I, I want to pray for those who who would say, you know, if I'm honest, I, I know that I need to make a decision this Christmas. That perhaps you're a Christian and you're here, and as you look back at 2018, you would say, it just kind of feels like I've been sleepwalking through my, my walk with Jesus. And I'm still here, I'm still trying to follow him, but it just feels like I'm just kind of going through the motions, just showing up, doing the things I've always done out of habit or routine, but, but I'm lacking in passion, I'm lacking in conviction. And, and you feel like the Lord is, is calling for you to make a decision by His grace to, to say, God, I, I don't want my 2019 to look like my 2018. I know I can't force that. I know that has to be your spirit. I know that has to be a gift from the Lord. But as much as it depends on me, as much as it's up to me, I want to lean into you in the coming Jesus, in the coming year, Jesus. Some of you might say, you know, I need to make a decision. I can't just sit on the fence. I can't just pretend that my walk with Jesus is fine when I know that it's not. And if that's where you're at today, we want to pray for you. We want to pray that God would, would give you the, the grace that you need to, to take that next step. And then lastly, certainly there are some of us here today who would say, I, I am not a follower of Jesus. And, and if that's you, if you would say, I, I just kind of stumbled in here because a friend invited me or you know, I was forced by my in-laws to come, whatever that looks like, we're, we're just we're so glad that you're here. And, and perhaps, perhaps this morning you, you feel as if God is in, inviting you to take a next step and to enter into relationship with him. And if that's where you're at, we, we want to pray for you. We want to bless what God is doing in your life. We want to bless that work, and we want to come alongside you and support you. And so if that's where you're at, I would recommend, I would encourage you to come and receive some prayer. So if you're on our prayer team, if you've been trained to pray, can you head to the wings right now? Can you head to both sides of the stage? And, Over the course of this next song, if, if one of those points resonate with you, I would encourage you to come and receive prayer. Some of you might just want to come forward. You just have business that you want, to, you want to take to the Lord, things that you want to process with Him. I'd encourage you to come and you can kneel in front of the stage. No one's going to pray for you. You can just have that time to, to be with the Lord.
But if you want prayer for anything, we would love to, to pray for you now. So if you, you would like some prayer, why don't you begin to head, head forward now. And for the rest of us, let's, let's worship our King. Thank you.